You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here for your murder mystery world tour. And we are here in our final week discussing Emma Stone X's The Lamplighters. Herds, this book has earned a special place on the show because it's the only book I think we've uh, now dedicated four weeks to on the show. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you're, not, you're not entirely wrong, are you? We spent an awful long time chatting with, chatting with the author, speaking about this book, crafting theories, and moving through the, the rocky stormy waves that surround our little lighthouse here that we are currently uh, speaking in, you know, currently broadcasting from. We are discussing parts nine to the end of The Lamplighters today. Mm-hmm. And just to get you caught up on what happens in super, super, super brief, we have a short <laughs> stretch on The Lighthouse in 1972 with the Keepers, where they realize that they've gone insane and that Sid was probably a hallucination. Mm-hmm. We have a chapter on the mainland where we discover that Helen was the detective all oh along goodness. and she goes to figure out who Dan is. Great. And then we have our final two parts where the truth is more or less revealed. <laughs> yeah, we're going to have to talk about that, I think. But can we look, can we talk about uh, Helen for a second? My goodness. Oh, yes. She is. I knew this would be where you wanted to start. <laughs> she is the stealth protagonist of this entire novel. And I kind of love the that. Stealth protagonist? Yes. In a sense. I love it. She is the stealth protagonist. There's a lot of weird stuff going in this book that I enjoy, but the fact that Helen is the detective by the end, like we talked a lot about how in the opening, the interrogations, the interviews of this novel, you know, we don't really see much of of Dan, Dan, whatever his last name is. Anyway, uh, (laughs) (laughs) but we do get a very thorough breakdown of the situation by Helen. And we also learn through the interviews with the other characters that Everyone knows everybody else. So Helen, yeah. like, knows everybody and has plenty of time to sort through through the information, has heard all the theories. So something that we are kind of – we're not primed for this, but something that we kind of understand throughout the novel is that the information that we are learning as part of the text and as part of Dan's investigation – the other characters, they all already know. Yeah, I also did love, on that same kind of note, the way that Helen actually finds out Dan's identity as Dan Martin, son of uh, Jory Martin, is just writing a letter to the publishers. Yeah. Like, it's not some big, elaborate trap to catch the criminal. It's just, oh... I've realized there's something off here and I'm going to inquire. I'm going to figure out. Yeah, it's almost like yeah. tidally satirical it's, it's so of funny. the nature of the detective in mystery. Well, it's so funny that we we, we just come back, uh, we cut off the back of like magpie murders wherein only an editor could have solved this crime, but yeah. really anyone could have figured out who Dan Sharp was and really anyone could figure mm-hmm. out what happened on, on the boat, at least you know more or less than anybody else could. There is a distinct lack of the, of the typical... You know, only only this detective could have solved this crime because they're so smart, because they had the exact opportunity to. It's more about the motivation yeah. of the detectives in the book, of the people that are trying to figure out what's going on, than it is about the actual means of uncovering the truth, I guess. Well, that's one of the most kind of powerful choices about this story, is that it is clearly a tale about ordinary people. Yeah. You know, the detective so often in Murder Mystery feels like this superhuman being, mm. or at least is kind of given an edge by the author that's partially implausible yeah. in, in the same way that we are given almost a bird's eye view as a reader so often in Murder <laughs> Mystery. Bird's eye view. Mm-hmm. But in this case, where we have ordinary people solving an ordinary story of a mystery yeah. that actually happened, I was going to say solutions are the same to both. It, I think, is very fitting to kind of humanize the problem 
and also humanize the method of solution. I, I remember, it's a bit tangential, but I remember reading stories about the, you know, the Titanic movie that was incredibly well critically acclaimed. You know, that, that's a great example yeah. of how to do an adaptation of this real-world event by focusing on these fictional characters and putting them into the real tragedy that is the Titanic. Mm, you're not a fan of the North Korean <laughs> musical octopus version I of the Titanic? I haven't seen that one. But, 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 but yeah, like my point is, of course, that... It is, it is very easy to try and adapt or explore a real-world tragedy in a way that is disrespectful. I think the thing I wanted to touch on, because this is what I've been harping on the entire novel, is the stylistic choices in here. There's not <laughs> sure. as much to kind of riff on in this part of the book, <laughs> because things start to calm down. The turbulence that has inhabited these people's lives, now that they've kind of hashed out these issues, now that they have decided to set aside most of their differences is actually displayed in the way that the text is written in a very tangible way because of how enormous the contrast is to the massive stylistic leaps earlier in the book. Not not to say that there isn't a um, a crest in the waves, you might say, before the finish line. Yeah. There are some pretty nasty truths, like Arthur and, and Helen's child, Tommy, who is, is eaten up by the sea. Yeah. Like... <laughs> There are some really dark notes that this story hits um, beyond just the tragedy of these three men going missing. It's very interesting to me that so close to the end of the novel, we're still like uncovering these deep, dark secrets, you know, and saying that the the madness that you mentioned earlier, that the three characters on the lighthouse are kind of losing their minds. It's not just attributed to the lighthouse environment itself. It's also to do with, the, the baggage that you bring onto the lighthouse, you know? The really fun example there is when we're looking through Vince's recounting of him joining Trident in the first place and him saying that yeah. he'd heard stories of Arthur and how unusual it was to hear stories that were positive about principal keepers. Like there's this one guy who mans the lighthouse entirely naked and no one wants to end up with him. <laughs> but Arthur was like the only keeper you ever heard of who actually you heard about for the things that he did well. Mm. You almost humanize the naked lighthouse guy oh, yeah. because you realize that he's probably just experiencing some level of insanity that we see well, yeah. these characters developing here. Well, that's the, the, there's this the saying that- if someone, when you meet someone, you know, just a stranger in the street and they've obviously got something bizarrely wrong with them, like they're wearing their shirt on backwards or they have a weird verbal tick or they, you know, they, they are dirty or whatever. Like you can see the thing that is quote unquote wrong with them. You could see like the weird thing, yeah. but it's the people that are, that are buttoned up and speak politely and never say, I, I'm quoting something. I don't know what it is, but it's the people that button up and speak politely to you. They're the ones that are, they got the real mess going on in their heads. I, I feel I feel as though that's something that's kind of brought to mind by that, as you say, that contrast between Arthur and the other keepers who have, you know, clearly lost their marbles. But maybe Arthur has has, you know, he's more long gone than the rest of them. We don't we don't really know, though. Yeah, I think that's the really fun thing about when they start to look at the weather logbook at the end. And that's kind of like the. Uh, the chess piece that, you know, <laughs> hits checkmate, for example. Oh, my goodness. It's really interesting there how uh, it's such a mundane way that he's messed up that they start to realize how far gone they actually are. Like, you know, one of the few tasks that they actually have to do while they are, they're out there 
is so wildly gone. And also the fact that it is a symptom of the sea mm-hmm. that is chosen as a symptom of Arthur's and the crew's insanity. Yeah. I really love that as a detail because as you were kind of positing towards the end of last week, and we'll I get was. into the mystery at the tail end of the show today, yeah. the sea kind of is the villain in a way here. And even though it's not the traditional villain because it's the ocean, <laughs> we still see it's its entire kind of indirect yeah, <laughs> yeah. If we see this like influence on the characters through that logbook and them realizing that this is like the tipping point. Can I say uh, just just while I have the idea of the buttoned up people being the like real bad guys fresh in my mind, the fact that they see the logbook and they go, "Well, obviously Arthur did it." Like, I, yeah, he has been nothing but good to Trident House for however many years he's been working there, and they see one yeah. mistake. Like, it's a big mistake, admittedly, but they see that one mistake and they're like. Arthur did it. Arthur's the one. Like, we're going to cover up for him, but we, like, we know we as as judges of his character and of, like, who he is, he killed everybody, clearly, you know? He finally, he finally went and did it. Well, the other thing that's so really interesting awful. about that, like, beyond them judging him for the actions that they don't necessarily know he committed, is also, like, it implies that this has happened elsewhere. Oh, for that, sure. like, oh, yeah, this is, oh, the Keeper's gone, all right? It's that time, <laughs> that time yeah, of the year. Yeah, this is the time of the year when the Keepers go a little bit, a little bit loopy, and uh, we need to deal with this. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. It's absolutely crazy. But I suppose, heard that that is our cue to jump across and start talking about the mystery in this story and your solutions. I'm very excited for this because it's going to be a contentious one, even though we've seen the answers. <laughs> I'm full of trepidation. You're listening to Death of the Reader. We are discussing Emma Stone X's The Lamplighters all the way to the end, and we'll be back with more of that in just a second. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Hertz here for your Murder Mystery World Tour, and today we are joined by the ghost of Emma Stonex here to haunt our discussion of the Lamplighters. We're in our third week discussing the novel. That means all spoilers are on the table. Emma, it's a pleasure to have you back. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me back. It's lovely to be here. <laughs> it's lovely to have you. Now, Emma, your novel, The Lamplighters here, has capped off for us on Death of the Reader a long journey through metafictional texts. Uh, when you sat down to put pen to proverbial paper, did you know from the very beginning that your story would fall under the uh, the tent, the canvas of metafiction? Well, I loved the idea, because The Lamplighters is based on a real-life mystery, mm. I love the idea of playing around a little bit with the idea of me approaching this mystery. And if I was attempting to write about it myself, how it might be to have a character who was also trying to write about it. And I think mm-hmm. this enables me to introduce the necessary distance between the real event and how it's imagined many, many years later, in this case, 120 years later, because it means that I can give the event the respect it deserves. I can be sensitive to it. I don't have to attempt to tell it from the inside out. And by having my character, Dan Sharp, um, it means that there's that extra added level of personal exploration as well in the story. So it wasn't something that I I necessarily planned sort of very stringently from the beginning, but it Mm. certainly unfolded as I was exploring the story. And I'm really glad that that's how it's turned out. Now that you've had a bit more time to reflect on the novel since its release and people's response to it, do you think that that sensitivity 
to the original event has been important to the novel's reception, and do you think that crime fiction maybe needs to be more sensitive to the impact on the victims of real crime? That's such a great question, and I wrote a piece a while ago about reimagining real historical events, and it was very much about what you're saying, and I think there is a responsibility on the author's part to A, research a real event properly, because we don't know what happened to those men still. And because there is still this uncertainty for surviving families, I think that that's extra important in this case. And actually, the book I'm writing at the moment is based on another unsolved mystery from years ago, actually set in, well, the book, my book isn't set in Australia, but the event happened in Australia many years ago. And yeah, I I, I think for me, it's about taking a real event and using that as a springboard for a a completely different fictionalization, but that has its roots in this real event rather than attempting to retell it um, as it was. I actually met uh, a great niece, I think, of James Duckett, who was the principal keeper who vanished off the Fannin Isles. And she got in touch with me and she actually lives in Bath, like 25 minutes from my house. And she asked for a signed book. And so obviously I said I want to come and see you can I come and give it to you and it was really nice to kind of touch have those two points touched together um it was really magical actually and I felt very glad that I hadn't waded in and attempted to tell James's story or his mate's story that this is a separate story but that it tackles lighthouse keeping and that and that way of life that's such an awesome story to hear I put forward the conclusion that I didn't think it mattered who actually who killed who at the end of the day, uh, and that the sea is the villain that that I felt you were portraying, you know, as I got towards the end of the book. Was someone picking up an, an abstract concept like the sea, uh, similar to, you know, the way that Poseidon perhaps is used in, in Homer's Odyssey, just to throw something out there to give <laughs> myself a bit more credibility, uh, you know, as the killer, the sea is the killer. Is that something you would have expected? Um, and how personally slide do you feel that I ignored the grounded details of the book to reach this answer? <laughs> Emma, I need to know. <laughs> um, I, I'm so glad that you took that about the sea because the sea Thank you. <laughs> is the main character in the novel. And the sea is a gift of a character for a writer because it has so many faces. It's so mm. many different personalities. I went to an event last week and read from the beginning of the book when the relief boatman goes out to the maiden. And even though I moved the pieces of the novel around in my mind so many times during the writing, that first chapter was always going to be the first chapter because I loved the idea of this slightly seasick approach to this looming monolithic tower on the horizon and to set that slightly queasy feeling in the reader. I'm not making my book sound appealing to people who haven't bought it. <laughs> um, <laughs> We've been but, doing the sale for you this entire it's time. True. We think that it's the highlight of the book, how awful it can make you feel. <laughs> Thank you. But yeah, I think the sea has to bleed into a book about the sea. It can't just be there as a backdrop. It has to be the the blood in it, you know, it has to be the thing that moves it forward. We've already talked about how many weird supernatural elements are on the book. The fourth ghostly hand, the white rook, who is probably a character, but is also a feathered, a white feathered mythology bird, whatever. It's There's all sorts of weird things going on. But I noticed there's, there's quite a few elements that take on the color silver. There's a silver man who doesn't seem to be concerned with death. 
I think there's a mention of silver fish and it's like meteorite that's silver. Why did you settle on silver as one of the uh, primary indicators of strange supernatural things happening? What's so special about silver to you um, in relation to this story? I don't know. And actually listening to you <laughs> say that, I think I've got loads of silver in my new book as well. Great. <laughs> I think I'm, I'm hoping there's mines in it. Don't that's remove it. We want to see where it is. <laughs> Please do. We'll pick it apart I if think, you don't. Um, there's something about the quality of water around the British coastline that's very silver. Mm. It's a sort of pewter colour, the water, in the part of the world that I'm thinking about, or it can be on a dull day. And a lot of days in the UK are quite dull uh, weather-wise. And um, something about the quality of the light when it sheens off that water is sort of brilliant and tragic at the same time. I don't know why the British coastline makes me feel sort of melancholy. And parts of the, the UK coast are quite dilapidated and hark back to glory times gone by and there's a sense of loss around them as well so silver I, I suppose is a color that I associate with the British coastline and mm. yeah I, I I guess it's I guess to answer it in the shortest way possible it's to do with the reflection of the light I see it in my mind as reflecting light and you can take that as reflecting the sunlight or as something slightly otherworldly, I guess. And that's how it moves into the supernatural element. I guess I was curious, you've mentioned you have another book on the way. Is there a similar force in this new book? I mean, you, you mentioned Australia. There was a real life incident in Australia that's inspired your new book. That immediately brings my mind to the bush, right? Is there a similar sort of natural element, environmental element that, that occupies the same space as the sea? Um, off the coast of Britain in your new book. Can you talk about that? Can you throw me a bone here? Help me out. Yeah. Well, I would have loved to, to set this book in the Australian bush, but I've actually never been to Australia and it felt <laughs> wrong. I know, I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't, and not for lack of wanting. I think similarly to the Lamplighters, so the real event that inspired the Lamplighters happened in the Outer Hebrides in Scotland, um, which I visited very, very briefly, but I, haven't, I don't really feel at home there. So I moved it down to Cornwall where I do feel at home. And similarly with this new book, um, I don't feel at home in, in the bush. I don't feel like I could, it's not, not my place to write about it. It's somebody else's place. Um, so instead I've transposed this to the Lake District in the north of England. I don't know if you know the Lake District. I, I know it from crime fiction. I don't know if that constitutes actual knowledge. Do you know what? It's very popular in crime fiction, isn't it? The Lake? Exactly. Speaking of atmosphere, one of the most interesting details of the Lamplight is to me, uh, that we were speaking about on the show last week was the styles of speech in the book because so much of the book has this sound of the sea, the crashing of the waves, the very tangible turbulence. I noticed that the character's speech, in contrast, is fairly homogenous. The clear outlier, though, and speaks in this very heavily stylized, I want to say northern accent? I'm not actually too sure. Yeah. Why make Sid stand out so much in this way when he's already such an oddity on arrival? You know, there's almost this question he may not even be there. Were you trying to make our paranoia rise with the crews? <laughs> Sid is actually based on this guy who came to my house and did some work in, and built that a conservatory. <laughs> And he was such a character and he was like a whirlwind whenever he came to the house and he had these incredible anecdotes that he would deliver one after the other with no segue between any of them. And I just thought, I've, I've got to put you in a book. And I wanted Sid to feel jarring in the book. I wanted him to feel disruptive, not just in a physical way, 
um, because the space on the tower is so private and intimate between these three men. So to lob somebody else on, whether it's a mechanic come to fix something or um, one of the inspectors from Trinity House, Trident House in my book, it's it's a disruption. But to have his voice in a sea of many other voices be something very different and quite startling contributes, I hope, to this sense of unnerving menace that he brings to the lighthouse. Emma, thank you so much for joining us here on Death of the Reader. It has been such a pleasure speaking with you once again, and I am so looking forward to the next book that comes out of your hands, because this has, and I say with no shame, been my favourite new release of the year. So it has been a privilege to cover it on the show. And thank you once again for joining us. Thank you. It's a complete honour. Thank you very much. You are listening to Death of the Reader. We are discussing Emma Stonex's The Lamplighters. We will have links up on the podcast if you want to find out more about it, as we always do. Stick around. We have the final unravelling of the mystery to come. You're listening to 2SER 107.3. You're listening to Death of the Reader, Flex and Herds here. We are discussing Emma Stonex's The Lamplighters on your Murder Mystery World Tour all the way to the end of this book. I'm very excited, oh Herds, because you, having been in the hot seat, have uh, now seen all, in quotations, the answers. Uh, what was the answer? And now I have something to ask <laughs> yeah. you. Exactly that, Herds. Oh, no. What was the answer? Do you feel like you earned your points? Because you said last week on the show that the sea and it was. was the monster all along. The sea was the killer. The sea took them all. And in some interpretations of the written page we have here, you are correct. But also, there is a culprit of sorts. Well, this is, this is the bizarre thing, right? We got this whole story about, like, you're the writer and you're the one who decides what happened. But then we also get, like this is what we say happened in the novel. I feel so many bizarre feelings about that final, well, not final chapter. And this is part of my argument here. Like even at the end of this novel, you know, we go through the whole process of Bill, who is apparently our killer, you know, letting Vince die. And that's an accident. And then killing Arthur, who was the only innocent man on that lighthouse, according to the text as as we read it. Mm -hmm. But then in the last moment, He is pushed into the sea by little hands and then the door swings shut and a little boat comes along to pick Arthur out of the sea. (laughs) At the end of the the actual novel, we have a chapter wherein Helen and and Dan Martin and all the ladies show up and they kind of say, you know, we don't really care about what happened to, to our spouses. We're going to focus on the relationships that we have now and move on with our lives. But if we switch those chapters and we say that Helen who has been given authority by Dan, who is the writer, yep. and by her, her own quote, which says that your own stories are always going to feel the most significant, it makes a lot of sense that Bill is the culprit because Vince was like completely slandered by Trident House and the media, and she just feels bad for him. And it also means that she can sort of patch up this divide. And also that Arthur did nothing wrong because Helen is the one betraying him. That's why Arthur is pulled up at the end in the boat because he is worthy of redemption and Bill is not because Arthur is her husband. And additionally, I mentioned Tommy for a reason in the previous uh, discussion we had. (laughs) I'm going to say that in Helen's mind, the little hands that push Bill into the sea are Tommy's. 
in her mind, Interesting. Uh, the idea of 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 Bill setting the sub clocks to to uh, 8.45, you know, is a malicious thing on Bill's part. And then Tommy pushing him in at the end is Tommy's way of saying, nah, you ain't going to use me. And it also gives her some semblance of, of this peace of mind, um, knowing that Tommy, you know, wasn't really gone in the end anyway. I think that's a really fun idea, looking at, like, Helen's role in the story as our detective author character kind of taking the reins yeah. from Dan because For sure. Dan as a character very much feels... Like, uh, I, I think the way that I phrased it to Emma Stonex the first time we spoke was that, like, you could tell that he was turned into a writer later. And I think in that respect, it makes sense that he's almost meant to, like, pass the torch to Helen, which I think is something that your theory there kind of leans on. And also looking more at the coping mechanism that the people who are left behind mm-hmm. still use yeah. as a means for solving our mystery rather than being like, ah, well, you see, the truth is this, because that kind of misses the point of the meta text of the novel uh, and the sympathy sure. of the people who are left behind. And that's that's like not lost on us as we've done these previous uh, two and a bit episodes now. The way that I engage with, with media, with stories, like I see stories in a lot of ways as a method of understanding the world and of also coping with things. That's like yeah. why people write stories and and yeah, I know that's that's very much like fueled my interpretation of the book and the way that I think about particularly that final chapter, right? I, I don't want to call the answer you gave last week a cop out because that's what you called it to me. I feel that's <laughs> off, off recording. Yeah, I I know I said that to you off recording, but it's it's kind of like it's a di- it's a disingenuous way to describe Thank it you. because to me, I think like. It, it first of all, it's the same one that I took because, like, that's what the sea serves as. It serves as like this almost Lovecraftian, greater than reality sure. villain yeah. that's brought these tragedies to so many people, and very much in in line with the sea mythos we've spoken on. For example, uh, the return of the Oprah Din. I'd kind of push the idea of Helen as the detective as the writer character, but not fleshed it out as fully as you have. So props to you sure. for that. Thank you. Appreciate it. But like, I guess the question I wanted to ask you as we get to the tail end of this segment is like, do, do you want your points? Because I mean, you, you can have both of them. They're on offer to you, but it's it's a bit of a weird one to edge around because clearly our mystery game stands in opposition in a way to some of the themes oh, of sure. this novel and like poking holes in people's real lives. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I feel as though obviously I, I get- you know, the one point for like posing a, the ghost theory, which is very silly. Yeah, easily. Um, and I did answer your questions. I feel a bit bad for how it turned out with, with Jory Martin, uh, with Dan Martin. Yeah, that was a bit, <laughs> you know, someone messaged me during the week before that and was like, you know, why don't you just try pose the actual solution hurts? Like, see how he goes, nah, see if he second guesses That's a bad you. idea. And I messaged back that person and I said, it's not going to go well. Like he'll spot it immediately. Yeah, no. well, There's the yeah, proof. I, mean, I, I need to like super clarify that because I, I wasn't sure. I was like, clearly- Clearly Dan is the son of someone in this story. I'm just trying to figure out who on the edges of the tale it could be. It might be Frank. And then you were like, Jory Martin is also a character. And I was like, oh, they have a last name. That makes them a much better candidate. <laughs> um, so I do feel a bit bad about that, but I did answer the question. And yeah, I answered the question about Trident House. And let me let me tell you that uh, previous times on the show, when you have actually offered me the choice of whether or not to take a point, I have usually said no. Mm-hmm. And I need to let you know, I've actually had people come up to me and say, you should have taken that point. Why did you not take it? You, you absolute fool. <laughs> so I think that in the spirit of making up for lost time and also in the spirit of saying, I am the writer, Felix. I am the one who decides what is true and what is not. 
uh, apparently, because that's that's how the story works. Um, I I will take the points. Yeah. I will take the two additional points. I I will say, were it any other novel, I would have given you one of the two points and and walked away and you know debated you down on the fact that I gave you Jory Martin more or less. But I think for this novel, it is a fitting one to leave the choice for you because it's it's all about you know the way that we deal with the uh, things we can't control. Yeah, I I was considering that myself. I was thinking I feel like I should get one point, but. But but yeah, like it fits with the themes of the story, and uh, just for me personally, like the reason why I, I arrived at a at a solution where the sea is the culprit and no individual is, is like like that's a thing that I am doing as a person because I I don't always want there to be a bad guy. Yeah, I think that's one of the really challenging things. I mean, unfortunately, we're we're pressed for time; know, we won't be able to fully explore this right now. But I'm sure Later it's something on. that'll come up on the show again. So. Uh, you know, get, get subscribed if you aren't already on the podcast. You know, that idea that the murder mystery game is so disconnected from what morality is like in reality. Well, that's why we look for stories that have morality as a, as a core theme, right? That's why we love them. Yeah, exactly. You know, th- that's kind of one of the lines that separates different aspects of murder mysteries and different types of murder mysteries that we read. And, you know, I think that the way that this novel has dealt with it, it's the the thematics are not new to us. We've covered so many stories, both on and off the show, that have dealt with the same themes. But I just really liked the way that this story packaged them, the way that it, like, punished you in how it was written, Mm -hmm. the way that at the end I felt guilty for like trying to pose a solution and just copped out and said it was the ocean right you know that's good when you have that kind of reaction to a text the authors kind of won the battle no, sure, so to speak sure. and i really love that about shout it shout out to emma sternex but uh we absolutely we, we must press on uh as you say we have we have little time left i will let you know we're doing something a bit weird uh we're gonna be covering a, a neat little book called murder on the way by theodore roscoe i'm promised skeletons and, and spooky shadows and that sort of thing. Nice, nice. I, I gather I'm the one solving this book. Well, uh, I've got a bit of a, a twisty twist for you there. It is a little bit weird, as I've said. Um, we're going to be having a guest on the show to guide us through uh, as the expert. So I haven't read the book. I don't even know if it's oh. good or not. I don't even know. Oh, this is a competition um, now. Yeah, we're going to be solving the book together against uh, a, a wonderful human being by the name of Jim Noy from The Invisible Event and in Gad We Trust, and he's going to be the expert for us. We're going to be covering chapters one to five, and we are both going in completely blind to Jim shenanigans. <laughs> this will be an absolute riot, I am sure. I apologize in advance to Jim Noy. Mm-hmm. Look forward to seeing you there next week for Murder on the Way. This is your Murder Mystery World Tour here on 2SER 107.3. Thanks for tuning in to Death of the Reader. <laughs>